Lord Jesus, we pray that as we open your word this morning, that you would indeed speak deeply to our hearts. Father, we live in a culture today that uh, many are not believers. Uh, many people don't see Christianity as plausible, that there is a God in heaven who made us and who cares for us and who we are accountable to for how we live. Father, as we consider your resurrection this morning, I pray that you would empower us with your grace to live according to your word. Father, we confess that in our sin we can't do that and we need your help. And so, Father, we pray that through your word and through the Holy Spirit working in us, you would empower us this day. Praise in your name. Amen. Well, in today's world, there's something that uh, you might have heard that's been labelled as cancel culture. Uh, under this kind of thinking or this label, uh, there's been many organisations or individuals who have found themselves being cancelled because of something that they've said or done. For organisations, maybe they've had their products boycotted or for an individual having mud virtually thrown on their face online, leaving a person or group ostracized, exiled, and left hung out to dry. All because of that one tweet or online comment. With our online world becoming somewhat like a giant shame machine, an online cesspit of verbal and social abuse that heaps on the shame when someone has taken offense. Uh, there was an early example of this back in 2013, where Justine Sacco uh, experienced this for herself. Uh, before boarding a plane to head to South Africa, she tweeted something that she would soon never forget and would soon regret. It's not worth repeating the tweet here, uh, but it's simple enough to say that she didn't expect the reaction that she got. Having only 170 Twitter followers at the time, she thought she was just kind of making uh, a bit of a joke. Turned out to be a very unwise joke to make. Upon landing in South Africa, 11 hours later, Justine would find herself the number one hit on Twitter and soon without a job. Having received tens of thousands of angry tweets, her posts went far and wide. Workers at the hotel <coughs> that she was working at uh, sorry, booked in to um, visit, threatened to go on strike if she showed up, and she was told that no one can guarantee her safety. Uh, the, the event even affected some of her family relationships who heard about the tweet that she tweeted. Now, Justine is just one example of a plethora of people and organisations who've been cancelled, having their reputation suddenly ruined. Uh, maybe you could add Will Smith uh, to this List, after last year, if you remember, he had that infamous slap of Chris Rock. And it was reported at the time, uh, his biggest fear is that he's in the process of being fully cancelled. And there's nothing he can really do about it except sit back, suck up his punishment like a man and try and atone however he can. You can add English cricket, uh, cricket commentator and cricketer Michael Vaughan to the list who only in the last week or two has been finally cleared of uh, alleged racism after a two or three year long dispute. And it would seem 
that Christians too themselves face the ever-increasing risk of being cancelled. In recent times here in Australia, perhaps the most famous example of this is the situation of Andrew Thorburn, who was being ejected from the Essendon Football Club because of his Christian beliefs. As one age article states, it seems that faith is not only unacceptable, but now must be cancelled. In the face of the possibility of kind of anyone being cancelled today, including the possibility of being cancelled because of your Christian faith, I don't know about you, but I certainly need to hear some good news. Well, it turns out that over against this cancel culture that we hear about and exists in our world today, when it comes to the gospel and Christ's resurrection here this morning that we're exploring, we find out that the gospel does its own kind of cancelling. But unlike the toxic cancel culture, the kind of cancelling the gospel brings to, the, to believers is positive in its nature, spreading God's goodness rather than polluted verbal darts a cancelling that is magnificent and extraordinary rather than destructive and ugly. And so this morning, as we open up Matthew 28 together, from our text, I want to consider three positive cancelling aspects that Christ's resurrection brings to believers. And the first is this, Christ, Christ's resurrection cancels fear. Like a glorious sunrise after a cold, dark, gloomy night, Christ's resurrection washes away our fears, replacing it with a new kind of fear, a joyous fear. In Matthew's account of the resurrection narrative, what we find is a powerful contrast between the fearful guards who run away uh, from what they've witnessed And the women disciples, on the other hand, who stay and are told not to fear. By both the angelic being from heaven and Jesus himself who appears in their midst and greets them. The fear of the guards is entirely understandable if we think about it. I mean, could you imagine the situation? Boring guard night duty, just sitting around guarding this this tomb. What was there to do but to nod off and sneak in some shut eye? Only then to be rocked awake by a great earthquake and the sudden appearance of a shining, beaming, angelic being from heaven. I mean, how could the guards not be scared out of their wits? Everything about the situation calls for one to fear and tremble. And such is the case for all who remain lost in their sin when they meet God eventually on Judgment Day. Fear is the only logical and appropriate response when, uh, to have when heaven rocks up on the sinner's doorstep. Indeed, for the sinner, heaven is, according to Scripture, now foreign territory, a foreign land where one simply does not belong. Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the, um, the Garden of Eden, humanity ever since has inhabited 
a spiritual wilderness, cut off from God's goodness and presence. A bit like the Sahara Desert for the human soul. And so what does humanity found in sin do when God rocks up? They run. Recognizing something of heaven in their midst, represented by this presence of the glorious angel, the guards did only what they could do. They fled. They simply did not belong there. For sinners, God's presence is now hostile, an enemy opposed to them. And this is the same for all who remain unrepentant of their sin, yet to turn their hearts towards Jesus. For the Bible declares God to be a holy, pure, and glorious being who cannot bear sin in his presence. Sin is that impenetrable barrier, like a looking up at a great big damn wall that you can't get past. That makes it impossible for humanity in our fallen state to enjoy God's love and presence. That is impossible unless Christ rose again from the dead. Unlike the guards, the response of the women tells a different story. Yes, they were bewildered. Overcome, even fearful by what they witnessed. Yes, they struggled to comprehend what their eyes were telling them to, was true. But that is not where it was going to end for them. No, first the angel and Jesus himself spoke these marvelous words to them. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why were these words so marvelous? Why are they marvelous for you and I as well, for all Christians? Because the resurrection of Jesus opened up the floodgates to heaven. Jesus' resurrection that morning was quite literally the dawning of a new age for God's people. The age of God's kingdom. Heaven had now crashed into this dark world. The dam had been breached and was now collapsing. Like the women disciples who responded with joyous fear upon seeing the angel and hearing that Christ rose again, we too, when we understand uh, what Jesus' resurrection means for us, can respond also with joyous fear. Why? Because we no longer need to fear the penalty of sin. Comparing the guards and the women... Uh, the lost and the found is perhaps a bit like having the police rock up at your door, but for completely different reasons. Upon hearing the policeman knock on the door, you might think, oh no, what have I done wrong? And then those dreadful words come out of the policeman's mouth. It says, you've been charged with a serious offence. We need to take you to the local police station for questioning. I mean, Pretty sure that would fill me with dread. <laughs> would it fill you with dread? But what if that same policeman said, Hello, sir or madam, your wallet containing $1,000 was handed in and we wish to return it to you. I mean, that same authority figure would in that instance bring a little bit of joy. <laughs> and so it is for, for true believers who know the true meaning of Christ's resurrection for themselves 
the more you look to it and understand it and how it restores us to the holy, glorious God, the more you'll be moved to joy and have your fears quenched or fears done away with. Churchgoer, what do you fear this morning? Are you fearful of the future of what might happen? What others think of you? Maybe embarrassing yourselves in front of others. Maybe you fear suffering or broken relationships and the consequences of what that brings to your life. Hear Jesus' words this morning. Do not fear. Know that our fears of even God has been taken away, of having God hostile towards us because of our sin. Do you see, do you know this joy for yourself? Has your fears been cancelled this morning? Having that heart knowledge that Jesus has taken away your sin can also help Christians who feel hung out to dry and not accepted by our culture. How so? Well, because having a healthy, joyous fear of God helps displace earthly fears that we might have. In Matthew 10, 28, earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said himself, Do not fear those who, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But not only this, there's something else that the resurrection cancels. It also cancels failures. This is because by dealing with our sin, not only does the resurrection bring us joy, but it also erases our past mistakes. This is good news, especially when Matthew doesn't shy away from highlighting how much of a big fat F for fail humanity gets on our scorecard for how we've lived and acted. Upon fleeing away, what do some of the guards do? Well, they run to their superiors and collude with the Jewish chief priests and others. <laughs> it spread by arguably one of the greatest lies ever told. The resurrected, resurrection never happened. The disciples came and stole Jesus away from the tomb, even when they knew that the resurrection had occurred. I think when we read this, it can be easy to point the finger at those guards and Jewish leaders and sort of seek to cancel them ourselves, exclaiming, you wicked lying people. But doing so can overlook the less obvious failures hovering around in the background here. Who? Well, the disciples themselves and their failures. I mean, let's not forget what's happened in the last few chapters so far. All this, uh, at this point, all the disciples who were close to Jesus had utterly abandoned Jesus for dead, having promised never to do so. With the loud-spoken, outspoken apostle Peter uh, infamously denying Jesus three times before the rooster crowed, leaving Peter feeling sorrowful and defeated. In a world that's willing to cancel 
others at a whim where past failures can seem to forever haunt you and drag you down. Being deemed as socially unforgivable, the resurrection is good news. In our sin, we do actually deserve to be forever cancelled and judged by God for our failures, whether past, present or future. But the wonderful news that it is, if you're a believer and believe in the resurrection this morning, this won't happen to you. When Christ washes away our sin, and in Christ God gives you a clean slate, like a painter who pulls up a brand new fresh blank canvas to begin a new painting on. Many today wish to rewrite their history, seek to somehow atone for past actions that they've committed. So what about you? Are you haunted by some past event or action, even to this day? Past sins that you've committed that weigh you down and that the devil loves to remind you of? Or perhaps a hurtful action against you from someone else? Jesus says, look to my resurrection. Believe in it, and in me I offer you new life, a fresh start. Repent of your sins, turn and believe in me, and I'll make you new. Your past or even future mistakes need not weigh you down. On the cross and in my resurrection, they have all been accounted for. I have conquered them. I have won the victory. This does not mean that Jesus promises to take away all the consequences that we might feel and experience in this life for sins that we've committed. But it does offer the hope and a possibility of experiencing some restoration now. Whether it's in the area of relationships or in our own experience of the joy in the Lord. Furthermore, his resurrection does offer the hope of eternal life when all consequences and effects of sin will be taken away. To believe in the resurrection then means not only to be on the right side of history. It's more than that. It's actually being part of God's plan to essentially rewrite history. For the world was going towards destruction ever since sin entered the world. And through God's plan of redemption, he brings about the renewal, and one day the renewal of all things. In that sense, he offers the hope of experiencing a world without the effects of sin as we look to the future. This includes spiritual life now, being declared righteous in God's eyes, transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and being spiritually united with the risen Savior. If you believe in Jesus, when God uh, casts his eyes and glances to look upon you, God doesn't see a sin-stained soul. He sees his beloved Son shining with his glory. Are you held back then by past or present sin? Look to Jesus who washes them away. Thirdly, according to Matthew, the resurrection cancels one more thing. It cancels worldly ambitions. Jesus urges the women here to go and meet with the disciples. 
and to travel to a mountain in Galilee where he'll meet them. Why Galilee? Why did Jesus not simply visit them there in Jerusalem? Well, it would seem that Jesus wanted to return to where it all began for him and the disciples. Galilee was a place where Jesus grew up, where his public preaching ministry began, and where he called his first disciples, those who were fishermen in the Sea of Galilee. Galilee signified then somewhat of a new beginning, or at least a continuation of what had begun. Now that Jesus had raised from the dead, his mission would continue. How? Well, first through the apostles, and then through the church. It was there that Jesus was going to be reconciled with those who had abandoned him there in that mountain of Galilee. And it was there that Jesus gives them their life's calling. From verse 16, I'll read again the last few verses of Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Like those original disciples, Jesus' resurrection gives our life new focus, a new direction. Uh, On the radio the other day, uh, someone was reflecting upon how uh, becoming a father for the first time had made a big change in their life. For them, it opened up a completely new perspective on life, on their own emotions, or (laughs) I guess the contrast previously with their felt lack of emotions to what they now feel. For them, they'd found a new purpose in life. Well, being impacted by the resurrection of Christ, being spiritually reborn, does something to your life. It changes your purpose, your outlook, your mission. We live in a culture today that it's all about me, me, me. But the Bible says it's all about God, God, God and his mission in the world. And his calling to make fellow disciples, for us to make fellow disciples who likewise learn to live a God-orientated life. And to live such a life is the natural, natural response of someone who's been impacted by the gospel. Like those forgiven disciples who abandoned Jesus and were forgiven by Jesus and commissioned to go and make disciples. When you see the glory of Christ's resurrection for yourself, Earthly ambitions fade away to the background and are replaced with heavenly ambitions. What's most important begins to become sharply more into focus. It's like looking through a telescope or camera lens that finally comes into focus and you can see a bit more clearly. I wonder if the lens that you're looking through in your own life has been brought into sharp focus as you consider what your calling is. 
I mean, what would you say your calling in life is? To be the best mum of your children? To be the best worker in your workplace? The best school teacher at school? Maybe to be a, 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 a social justice warrior? I mean, all those things can be included in some way. But over those things, Jesus gives a calling for, for the church and for all his people here to make fellow disciples. There are a lot of good things that we can do in life. The resurrection puts making disciples through sharing the good news of the resurrection front and center, whereby we seek the greatest good of others, which is having a restored, God-glorifying relationship with their Father in heaven, no longer being lost in their sins and destitute. I mean, do you see the joy of this mission? knowing that Jesus himself commissions you for the task. Who says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do not fear this task. You have heaven on your side. The gates of hell will not overcome you, for I have, overcome, I have conquered the grave. This leaves uh, one final question this morning. Uh, a few days ago, we were called, I called us to respond to Christ's death. Whether we believe that Jesus really did atone for our sins on the cross. I now ask a similar question about Christ's resurrection. Do you believe it for yourself? All those years ago, those Jewish leaders tried to cancel the truth of the resurrection. That same battle continues today, with many seeing Jesus' resurrection as kind of just a myth, a foolish tale buried in the chronicles of human history long past. But the evidence is ample. Matthew's emphasis on women being witnesses was unheard of in the first century Roman world, adding to its validity. The four Gospels are reliable sources that ought not simply be brushed aside easily. Jesus appeared to the Apostle Paul as recorded in Acts. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul recounts that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, many who were still alive at the time Paul had penned those words and could be personally questioned. But all that evidence is not enough. Ultimately, Jesus calls us to have faith. Maybe you are here today and you have your own doubts. Perhaps you have attended church uh, already in your life, but, but you have doubts remain. Or maybe this is the first time you're walking through those doors today and considering Christianity for yourself. You can believe all the other things about Jesus and his other miracles, even that he did die and that he was a historical figure. Yet if you don't believe in his resurrection, it's not enough. Cancelling fear, failures, worldly ambitions, experiencing heaven through the indwelt Holy Spirit, having your sins erased and the gift of eternal life, all these things are pinned to Christ's resurrection. Without it, none of it would come to us. So, do you believe? Will you come home to God this day and believe in him? Amen. Let's pray.
Uh, Lord Jesus, as we consider your, uh, the wonderful news that you rose again, that you conquered the grave, that you conquered our sins and rose victor- victoriously that third day, Father, we give you thanks. Give you thanks that you did not leave us in our sins, but you came and rescued the lost, the destitute, the low, the sinner. Father, we confess that we are people who have burned your ways and that we need your spiritual life. That every day we need you to work in our hearts to draw us closer to you. Father, we thank you that in the resurrection we have, uh, as we've seen in our passage today, the wonderful words that you've said, do not fear. Father, we live in a world of fear. There are so many things that we are fearful of. And Father, we pray that you would erase our fears this day, that as we look to you, that you've brought us the hope of eternal life, that we can go out into our lives and into this week with courage and with those precious words in the back of our mind, do not fear. We thank you that we, uh, the cross has taken away the greatest fear, the greatest danger, the danger of approaching you in our sin. But that in Jesus, we have communion with you again. Father, as we consider a culture that uh, in a lot of ways is not open to Christianity and the message of your truth, Father, I pray that you would embolden us, that Holy Spirit, you would empower us to be your witnesses in this world. Father, as we consider how the cross and your resurrection cancels our human ambitions, I pray that our hearts wouldn't be apathetic this day. But Father, we would be so overflowed with the joy of your life that others would just naturally see and we would naturally share grace to others out of that joy that's in us. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.